Reasons Why God is Nice is the title of a popular article published at the Huffington Post two weeks ago. This resonated with hundreds of readers who liked and shared the article, and I'd like to read a good portion of it for you to start off this morning's sermon. What if believers weren't taught to fear God, but to welcome him? What would that God and the resulting world look like? I decided to consider the existence of a loving, omnipotent deity of my understanding who is different than the great intimidator of my upbringing. I soul-searched for the God who didn't believe in faulting me for Adam's original sin or feel a need to threaten me with hell or a host of other things I believe only impede spiritual growth. I listened carefully for the voice within me, which I believe is the God voice that is in all of us for divine direction. Here are some of the things I came to believe about my God. God is nice. He is 100% love. My God doesn't have a hell in the hereafter waiting for sinners. The threat of eternal torment, I'm guessing, was a human creation designed to keep the rest of us in line. God isn't a believer in sin either. As humans, we are hardwired to make mistakes and are misguided on purpose. God doesn't get angry or hold grudges. He knows all, but doesn't hold on to negative thoughts or feelings for an instant, let alone eternity. He'd rather see us learn from our circumstances and move forward. God doesn't like people who act like they're closer to him than the rest of us. No one has the inside track to him. We all do. God doesn't keep a score. He's not in heaven writing up every bad deed or every good one for some final tally that will determine your position at the pearly gates. God is a huge fan of kindness and compassion and generosity. He came up with the whole random acts of kindness idea to get us moving in the right direction. God never leaves us. Even at the time when we die and cross over to the next chapter of our lives, we are not alone, and try as we might at times, we can never leave him. Yes, I am certain God is nice. Well, inside herself, this author, the author of this article, found a God who has no satisfying answer for the injustice that took place in Connecticut on Friday. He did not get angry or have any negative feelings. He didn't consider these murders to be sin since he doesn't believe in such an archaic idea. Only a mistake, misguided behavior, a circumstance from which to learn and move forward. He didn't keep any score against that young man and try as he did, that young man could never leave his God's good favor. I don't mean to disrespect a person, but this vision of God does not fit with the kind of world we live in and it is untrue. And it is damaging to the soul. And believing this will cost you your life here and forever. When we read this, some of us may be ambivalent. Oh, there's another goofy system of thinking. Some of us might get mad. We should be just struck with sadness. That image bearers of God would not know him and believe him to be this way. Looking inside ourselves to see what God is like is perfectly advisable if our insides are reliable. But if the scriptures are right, then the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Yes, God is nice and he is loving and we will find out just how much so, much more than this person could ever comprehend or that any of us could ever comprehend apart from God telling us the gospel in the scriptures. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Amos. The book of Amos. Open first to your index at the beginning of your Bibles to find out where Amos is. You have no idea. It's one of the 12 minor prophets. It's not minor because it's minor. It's minor because it's short. 
unfamiliar to most of us, this is a sermon on the whole book of the book of Amos. It unfolds in two unequal parts. First part is the first nine, chapter one through nine and a half. It's basically a catalog, an encyclopedia of human sin and God's judgment. In the last half chapter of the book, the last half of chapter nine, we will get a great surprise. A great surprise of good news in store for us on the other side of necessary, hard, and yes, good words. Amos is one of the 12 minor prophets, so you will get to know one of them better this morning. We'll read first uh, the first verse to get some background, and then we'll work our way through the book. You're welcome to follow along and flip along. I'll give verse references as we go, and uh, most verses I'll read will be on the back screen as we go. So Amos 1, 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Well, from the first verse of this book, we learn a bit about this man. He worked with animals. He was a working man. He was a normal guy. Didn't have theological training, was probably not educated at all. So how did he go from training, from farming, to speaking for God? Well, he was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. And those are his words. It's his line. Amos 7.14, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. So I worked with trees too. But the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Amos had a rural, acute sense of morality, living under the sky, You don't need an education or theological training for that. And this is exactly what God needed in his prophet at this time. And what was a prophet? Prophets were men set apart by God to speak for God. And when they spoke, they did two things. First, they reminded God's people of what he was like and what they were to be like because they were his people. Deuteronomy 7, 8 and following. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And secondly, they warned about judgment from God on the basis of what God had said in verses like this about blessing and cursing, Deuteronomy 30. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandment of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you will surely perish. Well, prophets showed up when God's people were practically begging God to do good on the promise of a curse. Prophets were not popular speakers. They were not invited to speak. They were sent by God to speak. They were basically holy complainers, ranting and raving and saying what needed to be said in language and in a manner that fit the message. Wild stories in the Old Testament, what prophets did and said. Amos preaches at a time of great prosperity and ambivalence toward God in Israel. And that's an understatement. Well, if you're unfamiliar with this book, you are in good company. It took at least seven days for me and lots of reminders from friends, colleagues, and my wife. It is not Amos, but Amos. I hope I've been saying Amos to this point. I didn't believe them all, and I went into Ron's office. I said, Ron, how do you say the name of this book? I said, Amos? He just looked at me. He's our resident Hebrew professor. He said, well, in Hebrew, it would be Hamos, 
So you have it half right if you're saying it in Hebrew. So Amos, it is. That, just to say, this is a new book to me. Uh, several years ago, I landed, up across, I landed upon the ninth chapter of this book and freaked out and have wanted to explore this book since. So you're along for the ride. Hope you enjoy it. Why Amos then? Because I stumbled upon that ninth chapter. I hope that um, you see Christ more clearly for our time in this book this morning for the entire Old Testament points and points to and prepares us to see him and receive him and to understand who he was and what he came to do. We've heard what one writer said when she looked inside herself for what God was like. Now let's listen to what one of God's prophets said. These are Amos' first, Amos's first words in this book. One, two. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastors of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. So chapter 1 through 9, 6, we could summarize. The Lord roars. The Lord roars. His roar is a roar of judgment. It's been a long time since I, and hopefully, probably you, have heard the roar of a lion. And it was either at a zoo or at the beginning of a movie produced by MGM Studios. And the reason we don't remember the lion, the last time we heard a lion roar, is because it wasn't memorable. We weren't in any danger. But we should know a few things about a lion's roar. They roar when they're hungry and want to eat something, and if that roar is at you, you're in danger. And they roar when you're on their turf and they want to kill you and then eat you. They're scary, roars are startling, and they are sobering, and this is good imagery to accompany the judgment of God. Amos says the Lord roars from Zion, Jerusalem, God's home base on earth. He can protect life, he can take life, or he makes life. He does and he gets what he wants. And everything he wants is good and right. He's a good lion. Imagine a roar so loud that its sound not only reaches the top of the sandias, but flattens all of the trees. That's this, that's, that's this kind of roar. So what is God like? He is like a lion, a scary lion against sin. And as becomes explicit in the New Testament, God's judgment, which we will see in this book, which is physical against uh, sin, has a new dimension that is real, that we see more and more clearly as the scriptures unfold, and that is the judgment of hell. Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Those are the words of Jesus. In the New Testament, the word uh, judgment does not get lighter. It is actually ramped up. But God's grace becomes all the clearer in all that God has saved us from through Jesus. The roar of God's judgment is like a roaring, thundering drum cadence that marches across this book as we read it. And the imagery of a drum cadence is actually going to be helpful to try to get our minds around and arms around the entire book as we read it. Through various arguments, explanations, and illustrations, Amos is playing four notes. God's judgment is impartial, it is certain, it is fair, and it comes with comprehensive force. Let's say you have four notes. The accent's on one. And you move the accent to two. And you can move it to three and four. Playing all the same notes, moving the accent around. It's kind of like what he does here. And throughout the whole book, he's hitting these four themes about God's judgment over and over again. But within four different sections as we move through the book, it's as though he's 
emphasizing one more than another. And so that's how, well, at least in the sermon, unfold the book. In chapters 1 and 2, Amos hits all the notes, as we've said, but the accents on the impartiality of God's judgment. The impartiality of God's judgment. It'll take us a moment to see this, and if you're in your Bibles, we'll start with Amos 1.3. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon, upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. Well, where are all these places? You don't know. You need, a, you need special books to find this out or a map. But we get the point, right? Uh, God is judging the wickedness of a people. The pattern is repeated five times against eight different nations. First, he states the certainty of judgment. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke my punishment. I will not. He demonstrates the fairness of his judgment. Why is God judging them? Because they have thrashed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Threshing sledges of iron were pulled by animals to separate seed from chaff. Seed from stock. Damascus was so brutal to its enemies and to Israel in war that commentators suspect that it is actually possible that this is not just imagery Amos is using to get at something of how ruthless they were, but actually what they did. We can't know for sure, but it's possible. This is the kind of thing that they did to their enemies. The comprehensive force of God's roar against this kind of evil is clear from its layers. Verse 4, So I will send a fire, I will break the gate bar, and cut off the inhabitants, and the people of Syria shall go into exile. Like a roaring thunderous drumbeat, God's judgment roars against eight nations, each judgment following the same pattern, for three transgressions and for four, for three transgressions and for four. So why is God so angry? What are all these transgressions? The common denominator is their offense against humanity. And in that, their offense against God, who has made every human in his image. Gaza and the Philistines captured unprotected cities and sold their people into slavery as vicious cowards. Tyre had a foreign policy of lying and deceiving for personal gain, selling even their allies into slavery as there was opportunity. Edom was Israel's ruthlessly angry brother, descendants of Esau, who is brother to Jacob, the father of Israel. Edom's anger doesn't let up. They tear their enemies like a wild animal. Tearing is the language used of them. The Ammonites are famous for uninhibited violence against the helpless. Tearing open the wombs of mothers and killing mother and child in war. Who are the most helpless and least threatening in a war situation? Those two. Moab hates to the point of desecrating graves even after they are dead. Moab's thirst for revenge is not satisfied against its enemies. And what will God do to each of these nations? God says, I will send a fire. I will send a fire. I will send a fire. And why so angry? Because God cares about human beings and they aren't objects for sale or for slaughter. And God calls this sin. And God calls the, what's in the heart of man out of which this grows and flows, sin. And did you notice the sheer universality of God's rule here? Everyone everywhere at all times is accountable to God. Romans 1 tells us that every human being is without excuse for God has made himself, his power and his divine nature known to us through what he has made. God will not say, oh my bad, you didn't believe I was holy. 
for surely we all know he is. So the judgment of God is falling on Israel's enemies and neighbors, and this surely would have had their happy attention. That is Israel's happy attention. How do you feel when you hear three strikes, you're out? Well, it feels great when your team's pitching, not so great when you're up to bat. Well, that's kind of how it is here. No doubt Amos' preaching would have drawn a crowd among Israel. He was smart. This is like candy to them. Would the fire break their walls? Of course not. They were God's specially chosen people. But the fire is moving closer and closer and the bird is circling its prey and Israel is up to bat. Chapter 2, verses 4. Verse 4 and following. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray after those uh, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it, will devour, it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. So Judah is judged, and now the sights of God through Amos are fixed on his audience, Israel. And now the pattern is broken. When he goes to give his reasons, because instead of two lines, you have something like three or four paragraphs, which we'll read in total. Chapter 2, verse 6 and following. This was Israel's sin. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar and garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But... You made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press down you in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand. He who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides on the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. So Israel tells her prophets, sent from God to speak God's word, to close their mouths, grinds the head of the poor into the ground, and shares prostitutes. Does this sound like loving the Lord their God, who called them out of Egypt? Why then did Amos preach judgment against the nations? which is most of the section of these first two chapters, in order to demonstrate to Israel the impartiality of his judgment. Israel's privileged position actually does not exempt them from judgment. It means greater accountability. He is holy, and they are his people. The Lord roars with impartiality. And the Lord roars with certainty. With certainty. Chapter 3 through 517. We've seen the certainty of God's judgment already. I will not revoke my punishment. But in this section, 
This is the big accent of the drumbeat of God's roaring judgment. Three times, once at the head of each chapter, three, four, and five we hear, hear this word, hear this word, hear this word. And in chapter three, he asks a series of rhetorical questions. Chapter three, four, and following. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there's no trap for it? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. And in chapter 4, God makes a promise and then rehearses the many lesser judgments he's given to unresponsive Israel. Verse four, chapter 4, verse 2. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. How greater of a promise is this? That behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, Israel's enemies, and even... Uh, even the last of you with fish hooks, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in your places, and you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were a, as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God. And thus we have the title of our sermon. If fish hooks aren't enough, this section climaxes in chapter 5 with a funeral song for Israel. A funeral song. Remember, the prophets are creative, they're dramatic, they're effective. The form of Amos' message matches the message of his message. He could say, you're going to die. Your life as a nation will be over, you'll be carried into exile. Instead, he plays a video of their funeral for them in the form of a song. Amos 5. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, a city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. In verse 16, in all the squares there shall be wailing. And just in case we think God doesn't have the right or the means to do good on all this, we're reminded time and again throughout this book of who he is. He's the one who made everything and gives life. Amos 5.8 He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. He built this place. He designed this place. He's over this place. It's his place. The Lord roars with impartiality. And the Lord roars with certainty. And the Lord roars with fairness. Chapter 5, 18 through chapter 6. The utter justice of God's judgment is seen in this section. Certainly it's rehearsed throughout the, the, the book. What was Israel's problem? We could summarize it in two ways. First, vertically... And her relationship with God. Amos 5.21 I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will, take, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. And why? Verse 25 did you, bring me, did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath your king, and Kuyan your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, 
whose name is the God of hosts. They combined the worship of God with the worship of the nations that surrounded them, whose gods were apparently, at least in part, if not in whole, more attractive to them than the God that split the Red Sea, that fed them with bread from heaven. And in a very real sense, this has never gone away. Syncretism, a mixing, a making up of what God is like, looking deep inside ourselves and perceiving what God may be like, combining from various religions what we think is the best of each to make what we think is the right of all. Second problem was horizontal, having to do with how she treated human beings. 6-4, woe to those who lie in beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. Amos 2, in Amos 2, men sleep with garments taken at pledge. So the poor, when they would work, they would use their garments as collateral as a way of promising a hard, day, a hard day's work, which they expected to get back at the end of the day since it was probably all that they had to sleep with. Well, the men of Israel who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on couches, lay themselves out in the garments taken at pledge and not given back to the poor. Israel men would keep the garments and they would fine the poor unjustly in order to buy wine with the money. Or in Amos 4, the Israelite women are no better. They're like plump, healthy cows of Bashan, he calls them. The Israelite women take advantage of the poor for more helpings and more meals. The abuses should be no surprise to us as our relationship with God is always overflowing in our view of human beings and in our treatment of our fellow human beings. And on top of all this, Israel was presumptuous. 5.18, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Apparently, Israel thinks she's safe. She's crying out for the day of God's judgment. Crying out for the day of God's judgment. It's like a bank robber who is so callous to right and wrong that when the officers arrive, he thinks they're there to take him out for a meal. This is precisely the blindness of sin. And as silly as that sounds, some of us have no fear before our maker, whom we will meet for the things that we do and think. God is real, he is there, we will meet him, he is holy. Why so confident? Two reasons. One, because of Israel's religious heritage, and two, because of her religious practices. And this is not an uncommon assumption on the part of human beings that because of our association with parents, or a family lineage, or the religion of our parents, or religion of our family, that somehow we're safe. As though God will hold us accountable for someone else and not ourselves. Or that our outward religious practices somehow merit God's approval. For example, going to church. Or participating in good acts, doing good acts, doing good things. Can give somebody an artificial and superficial sense of safety before God. That grows out of a, a, a misunderstanding of his greatness and his holiness. Common to Israel here and common to all humans. Israelites had plenty of heritage, by the way. The Red Sea, right? Bread from heaven. Crazy victories by walking around buildings and blowing trumpets because God had promised he was on their side and instructed them to do so. They had all the heritage and history, and they had plenty of religious practices and were engaged in them. 
And may I suggest that we don't need heritage or religious practices to feel too safe before God. I can remember a fit of rage in seventh grade, writhing on the ground in my bedroom, angry. I would rip things up when I was mad enough. Uh, and saying a prayer that went something like this. I have no memory of praying before becoming a Christian to God, speaking to God. But I remember speaking this. I'm right, and you know I'm right. And when we're all dead, she's going to find out. I promise you, whatever had happened was no big deal. It was no big deal. That's a scary prayer. I thought I knew God. What presumption. Martin Luther the great Protestant reformer, said the most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man was the idea that somehow he could make himself good enough to deserve to live with an all-holy God. That we could be good enough. That God actually does have scales and he's weighing, oh, that's bad. Oh, but there's enough good. Okay, you're in. The Bible's teaching is that our best is as filthy rags. Everything that we do is tainted with sin. Everything from faith is sin. We don't glorify God even in our best days, even though we're made in his image and are capable of marvelous good in one sense. The Lord roars with impartiality, with certainty. The Lord roars with fairness. And the Lord roars with comprehensive force. Chapter 7 through 9, 6. He finishes the job. And in this section, he rehearses a series of five visions. The fourth vision is of Israel as a basket of summer fruit. I'm reading through this. I think, oh, a basket of summer fruit. What's he doing here? Because what's wrong with a basket of summer fruit? It sounds nice. Well, not really. Israel knows all about summer fruit. It's no good. It's overripe. You throw it out. It gets trampled on the ground. God's people hated his presence And so God would leave them. Amos 8, 11 and following. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from the north to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. God had led them out of Egypt and fed them from heaven with food from heaven. In order to teach them that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is something that Lord Jesus remembered when he was without food for 40 days and didn't turn a rock into food for himself. But now because they don't want God's word and they don't want him, he will remove his presence. They don't know what they have coming. The final vision is the climax. It's a vision of the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jerusalem temple and the exile It is the true funeral passage in the book. Amos 9. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword and not one of them will flee away and one of them shall escape. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them and if they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. Who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth? Who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth? The Lord is his name. Remember he made it all. This happened several days, decades later for Israel. 
Israel fell to Assyria. Assyria grew in strength. God removed his presence from his people. Assyria moved in. God was not defending them. They were God's instrument of judgment. And all these terrible promises came true. She was hauled off to exile. So where are you and I in the mix? Right? The Bible's written for all of us, and this is not a sermon to Israel. Shall we presume that we are better than Israel? Israel is just a sampling of human beings with the best opportunity that human beings have had to please God on their own. They had God's wonders and they had his word. And yet she mixed her belief with the beliefs of other religions, finding them more attractive. And she loved luxury more than God himself or God's pe- or people. And she would not turn to God even when he sent him them personal messengers with his word and pleadings. If this was Israel with all her advantages, what, my friends, is wrong with the human race? Have you answered that question for yourself? Everyone has to answer the question, what is wrong with the human race? And what happened this last weekend forces your view of the world and your view of humanity into reality when you have to open your mouth. What do you say? How? Why? What is wrong with the human race? We do not have an education problem. Hitler and the tyrants of the 20th century were brilliant men and leaders of first rank. The shooter in Colorado theater, had a, he was a PhD candidate. He had a trained mind and he trained his mind on the killing of innocent people. In the weeks and months ahead, the Connecticut shooting will be dissected from every angle. What was going on with the shooter? What was his motive? There will be some strong moral language and there will be lots of obscuring, confusing, obscured language. He was sick. He was troubled. Personality disorder. But whatever he was, he was a sinner at heart and a murderer of human beings. So back to the question of what's inside us. Let's ask Jesus. Mark 7, 21, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. Proud that you aren't a murderer? Matthew 5, 21, you have heard, it, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. Proud that you aren't a murderer. Matthew 5, 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Any bad that a human does grows out of the human heart that is common to us all as sons and daughters of Adam. And it should not surprise us that when one person looks inside themselves to see what God is like, they come out with a God who approves of them without qualification. Well, according to Jesus, what was in the murderer on Friday is in all of us. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the fundamental question is not, why did God allow the Sandy Hook shooting to happen? But why does God by his grace, hold us back from doing everything that ever enters into our minds in secret. Can you imagine? And through Amos, the Lord is roaring at sin. He is roaring at offenses against humanity. And he roars at us. 
Now, you may be a person who resonated with the article at the the head of the sermon, in which case you must hear from God's word of the holiness of God and the sure judgment that awaits all of us if we die in our sin. But you may be a person that was raised with a vision of a holy God who expected much and punished for hell, and that's where it stopped. And you were left, maybe with these instructions or to figure it out yourself, that the best I can do is to do the best I can. To stack as much religious behavior, as much church attendance, and as much good as I can in a pile and confess every wrong thing I do as I go, that maybe God will accept me when I meet him. We all need to hear the good news that is the rest of the book. Some really good news here, even if a little cryptic. Amos 9.8 Behold the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not Utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Except, is God nice? Is he loving? Yes, and in a way entirely different and infinitely better than we could ever imagine without his word. And understanding the difference that Jesus Christ makes in this equation and in God's story makes all the difference for how any of us prepares to meet God. Maybe you've never understood why Jesus was born. Fundamentally, to quote Douglas Wilson, the reason for the season is sin. That is why Jesus came. He came into a world with murder. He came into a world with everything and for a world with everything we've read about in this book. He came into the world under the threat of death himself as Herod ordered the the slaughter of all the firstborn two years and younger. So let's look at the best part of the book, 9, 7 through 15. We're moving into the very heart of the Bible and the very heart of God himself, the gospel. The Lord roars and, good news, the Lord also restores. The Lord restores. The God who judges is the God who so loved the world, as John says, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He restores according to his promises. 9, 7 through 11, starting in verse 10, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, disaster shall not overtake us. Those who say, I don't have any problem. There's nothing wrong with me. God should accept me. That's the biggest problem any of us could have were we to say it. Verse 9, in that day, here's the promise, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the day of old. And right with that promise, we should feel all of the weight of eight and a half chapters of judgment shifting to grace. The whole Old Testament is the the story of how desperately in need we are, how bad we need God to intervene, and the story of God's promises and faithfulness to intervene for us. He made a great promise to Adam that one of his kids would crush the head of the serpent that got this wretched party started that leads to such things that we saw this weekend. He made a great promise to Abraham that through him, God would bless all the nations. And he made a great promise to David, 2 Samuel 7, the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. 
The booth of David in Amos 9 is David's dilapidated house, is his people Israel, is his dynasty, is his kingdom. God will raise it up, repair it, rebuild it, restore it as he's promised. He restores according to his promises, and the Lord restores to the ends of the earth. Let's read together verse 11 through 15 to see the extent of God's restoration project. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the day of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, note Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills that flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. Imagine hearing this after eight and a half chapters. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I give them, says the Lord, your God. So did you catch that promise to Edom about Edom? Remember Edom, the object of God's judgment in the first chapter? And if you do a Bible search for Edom, it's never good. Edom's never up to good, and Edom never gets good from God. Then you have this promise that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Some have said this must be a later edition. Amos did not write this. No, no, no. God's plan for Israel has always been that through Israel, a son of Adam would be born. It would crush the head of the serpent. And as promised to Abraham, through him, all the nations would be blessed. Now listen to Acts 15. After Jesus was risen and many non-Israelites were coming to faith in Jesus, there's much deliberation over how to manage this, how to think about this, how do we think about this? Acts 15, Jerusalem Council. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. What we have here in Amos is a prophecy of the kind of new humanity that Jesus will bring about through his life, death, and resurrection, through his work as the greater son of David, who dies for his people and ascends to his throne. And so, Matthew's gospel in the entire New Testament begins, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It begins with the genealogy of Jesus' lineage precisely because the entire Old Testament has been looking for such a one to be born from David, from Abraham, from Adam. So what is Israel all about in God's plan? God making a promise to bring salvation to the nations and it has reached us. If Amos is somewhat cryptic, though Isaiah is crystal clear. Is Isaiah not? You'll recognize this, Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. That's Jesus growing out of the obliterated tree of Israel, the stump, 
the wrecked Israel. Jesus grows out, a new growth, new life. Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, this one, to give us to, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But what about God's wrath against sin? Does God not roar against sin? Can he just let it go? Can he just make a promise that he'll let it go? What was the roar all about? No, he roars against sin. Isaiah 53 clears this up. Here's how God pulls it off. But he was pierced for our transgressions, speaking of this one. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Sound like Amos? And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Christmas night was not a silent night. Baby Jesus was screaming. There was blood everywhere. The animals were making a ton of noise. After nine months in the womb, Jesus emerged in a home for animals and lived a perfect life, never sinned, And he went to the cross and suffered a criminal's death. He suffered torture on the cross. He was abandoned by God as he was bearing the sins for those who had put their faith in him. He did not come to check the place out to see what it would be like. He came to be tortured and killed. As Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. On the cross, what was happening? Jesus took the roar for us on the cross. That's what happened. All eight and a half chapters that we surveyed of God's just judgment as a good God who does not tolerate sin, all of that roaring that should land on any one of us when our faith is in Jesus lands on him suffering in our place on the cross. Does faith and receiving his work sound too easy to you? Well, it's never easy for a human to admit that he or she is all wrong and God is all right. I would propose it's even possible for you to turn to him and accept the free gift apart from his grace. But it is a miracle he performs and it is one he may perform in you this morning. You may become a Christian today by believing in this Jesus who died in your place. God's wrath has never been incompatible with his love, as the article we read might lead us to think, or his niceness. It is a function of his love. But in Christ, God's wrath against our sin is no longer incompatible with his eternal love and acceptance of you and of me. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God, and helpless babe, This gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. One more point, and it's important. 
having believed in Jesus and living in the times that we do in a world yet fallen, not restored as it will be restored. How do we live? The Lord restores according to his promises. He restores to the ends of the earth and he restores so we should wait with patience and preach the gospel. We should wait with patience and preach the gospel. Listen now to the words of First, Second Peter 3, 1 through 13 with me. Second Peter 3, 1 through 13. It's as though Peter had read the article on the Huffington Post two weeks ago, had watched the news this weekend, and had all along been reading on and ruminating on and meditating on the book of Amos. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way, by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, such as Amos, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the, since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact. The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Some works make the news, some don't. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And not because of our righteousness, friends, but because of the righteousness of Christ and his blood. Remember that promise of the plowman overtaking the reaper? Basically a different kind of world where stuff grows all the time. That's the new heavens and the new earth that Peter is talking about here and looking forward to. So we should wait with patience and we should preach the gospel. Did you notice that why God is patient, is, why God is patient toward us? is because he is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If the sky has not fallen after Friday, and if you are still alive after the things that you and I think, then God is patient, wishing that we should turn to him and come to him because of his great love for us, which sent his son to the cross to make it possible for us to do so. And this is why God did not command the sky to fall, because he's patient. His disciples were not so patient after his resurrection. You'll remember Acts 1 Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're ready to go. 
He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Or as Matthew's account gives it to us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So where was God on Friday? He was roaring with the sound of impartial, certain, fair, and comprehensive judgment against sin and against the sin against humanity. He hates it and he hates murder. The shooter will never see prison bars for he killed himself, but even if he had, he would only have one life to serve and one life to give if he got the sentence for all the 28 or 30 he took. There's no ultimate justice in that. But there is, my friends, ultimate justice with God. And yes, the wrath of God can be a comfort to us in this world as we wait patiently. But it is only comforting if we're safe from it ourselves. If we have trusted Christ to take the roar of God's wrath instead of us. Do you feel like you deserve judgment of God? I hope so. It's not a good feeling. But I hope you do. And if you do, you're in a much safer place than the original hearers of this word who were in great danger thinking that they were safe and just fine by God. Do you feel unworthy? You are. That's okay too. It's right. Our need is so great that God had to send Jesus to die on a cross for us. He's done what it takes. We are that unworthy. God is that loving. And I am that unworthy, and so I say with Paul, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And it's no surprise that C.S. Lewis chose a lion for the part of the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. I tell you, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word which puts us in our place. We don't like to hear that we're wrong, but that's precisely because we are who we are as sinners. It's precisely because we are self-deceived. But Father, if we've ever scoffed at your judgment, we recognize that it's right and good. As we ourselves with any decent human being was crying out for judgment against the murderer on Friday. We cry out for judgment. And Father, we praise God that we can cry out for you to do what is right and be safe because you have dropped your wrath on your son Christ instead of us. And Father, I pray that each of us would be found believing in and trusting him for safety from your wrath and receive your love for us in Christ, whom you sent into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.